The scripture reading today is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Excuse me. For the men on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. We're continuing in our series uh, about the triumph of Jesus' ministry. We've been saying that in the Christian church, one of the things that we focus on is Christmas, the birth of Christ, the uh, incarnation. We also focus a lot on Good Friday and what happens when uh, Jesus dies for our sins, what uh, takes place with the atonement and, and so forth. We look at Easter, at the resurrection, uh, and then we begin to look at the triumph of Jesus' ministry after the resurrection and what that's meant, what the spirit of Jesus after his ascension dwelling in his people means means to them on the pages that we're reading, but also means to us now as we live our lives together here in these neighborhoods and here in Philadelphia. So we continue today with our passage in Acts, and it's a trial. And <laughs> one of the focuses of the trial uh, reminds me of uh, Anne-Marie and I and my family just moved in this week. So we're here. We've got boxes stacked up. We're unloading. Uh, we didn't expect that the movers were going to actually bring the boxes in and not unpack them. We thought they were going to unpack them. But they left them stacked. And so we're, we're unpacking for the next couple of weeks at least. And one of the things we love to do as a family is laugh together. And so we've been listening to a lot of Brian Regan, little Jim Gaffigan. And Jim Gaffigan has a moment in one of his, uh, one of his bits where he says, Are you comfortable? You feeling comfortable? Good. Because I want everybody to be comfortable. That's why I'm going to talk about Jesus. Um, the trial here has that same emphasis. It's all about Jesus. The focus is on the triumph of what he's done, who he is, what he's done, how he's filling in in people's lives. So we're going to look uh, this morning at false spirituality. We're going to look at true spirituality. And we're going to look about... We're going to look at what the implications for spirituality, true spirituality, is for us. False spirituality, true spirituality, and the implications for us. First, let's look at false spirituality. What we see early on in this passage is a picture of spiritual impoverishment. Spiritual impoverishment. And despite the religious leaders that we see here, they're the top. The top religious leaders of their time, despite their activity, their superactivity in religion, they're spiritually impoverished. We're going to look at that. Verse 1 and 2 talks about the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. They were what? They were greatly, it says annoyed in our text, but the, the Greek word literally means disturbed. They were greatly disturbed. They were unsettled by what was going on by what Peter and John were doing with the people that were under their care, 
by what Peter and John were teaching. Greatly disturbed. Disturbed at what? And why? Disturbed in what and why? Well, disturbed at what? First, Peter and John were teaching the people, it says in verse 2. They were taking it upon themselves to do the job of the religious authorities, the guys who had trained, the guys who had spent their lives preparing to prepare these people to come to the presence of God. Peter and John, unskilled, untrained, ordinary men, were taking it upon themselves to teach about spiritual things. So they were disturbed by that. But Peter and John were also proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The literal resurrection from the dead. And they were disturbed by that. Now why? Why was that disturbing? Remember Gaffigan? I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. Because, because of Jesus. And how he threatens the, the status quo of the day. First of all, in verse 4, we see that Peter and John... And the way that they're talking to people, and the way that they're teaching them, and the way they're talking about the resurrection, persuasive. Verse 4, those who heard the word believed. Peter and John were teaching a spirituality that, that was different from that of the religious leaders. It was different. And the religious leaders realized that. They realized that you can't have both A and non-A in the same time, in the same way. You can't do it. You can't have that. And what they were teaching was non-A as far as they were concerned. It was completely different. But not only were they persuasive, those who heard the word believed, verse 4 says they were effective. Many, given our last number of those who were gathered in to, to the believing number, the early church, there were a couple more thousand added this day at the ordinary teaching about the gospel from Peter and John. A couple thousand, and, and the commentators say that that doesn't include the women and children that would have been there. So those numbers just account for the men, not including women and children. So there's effectiveness going on. People are being changed by what they're saying about Jesus and his resurrection. People are being changed. You know, Rebecca Pippert has a book, an older book now, called Out of the Salt Shaker, and she talks about what it means... To uh, is if the church is a salt shaker, it's no good to stay in the shaker itself. You got to get out. You got to season things, right? And she was talking about a psychology course that she had, and uh, she was she was listening, and the the instructor, the professor, was going through all of the things that were wrong with a certain case that they were looking at, all of the things that were broken. And it was a relationship that was broken, and there was a lot of unforgiveness, and there was a lot of uh, animosity, and there was just a lot of degradation in the relationship, in the fabric of the relationship itself. And so Rebecca listened to this entire lecture, and at the end she, she raised her hand and said, excuse me. And he was about to end, and she said, excuse me. And he said, yes, what is it? She said, I want to know how in this course you would help that person to forgive the other. You know what his answer was? Oh, that's another department down the hall. <laughs> See you next week. It didn't, all of that analysis in her class, she realized, didn't help one bit with the kind of change that's able to be brought about by the gospel of Jesus. Being from the dead, ascended, sending his spirit to fill us, to be new kinds of people, salt in the world, out of the salt shaker. 
So they were persuasive. They were effective. But there was power. By what power or name did you heal this man who's been crippled? Everyone knows it. He's been crippled. He's over 40 years old. Everyone's seen him. From the time he was very little, he's been begging at this gate. Everybody knows it. What power or name did you do this? So there's power. Verse 10 says, by him, by Jesus' power. That's how it's done. But what's interesting here is that it's not spiritual power for these religious leaders that's threatened, that's disturbing them so greatly about what Peter and John are doing. It's not that. It's political power. It's the control that they've managed to eke out in the shifting tides and the different kinds of leaderships and the people and governments that oversaw their own nation and under which they consider themselves in bondage. Verse 5 talks about, the word is not there, but it's, it's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the collective group of rulers, elders, and teachers of the law, which is transcribed scribes in your text. Teachers of the law. And they were like the Senate and Supreme Court for the nation of Israel. And people were falling away in droves from their political power to a power that could take a man from being crippled for over 40 years, verse 22. And then verse 21, we see that all the people praising God for what had happened. That's threatening. They've worked hard at keeping their political power. We also know it was political power that they were concerned with because of the Sadducees. They're part of the group. They're egging this on. Why? Because the Sadducees, their descendants from a group called the Hasmoneans, who were a group who believed that they had instituted the Messianic Age. So the Sadducees had believed themselves to be the representatives of the Messianic Age. But here's Jesus saying, no, I'm the Messiah. Here's his people saying, no, Jesus is the Messiah. It's through his power that these things are happening. These kinds of changes in people's lives are taking effect. The Sadducees saw themselves as representing this age, this messianic age. They saw themselves as representing orthodoxy. They weren't interested in innovations. This unexpected ending to God's work in redemptive history, this unexpected fulfillment where it comes out from Israel and goes to, not uh, limited to Israel, but to every nation, the good news that you can be reconciled with God. That surprise ending is not an innovation that they were interested in. And the Sadducees rejected the hope. They rejected the hope of heavenly intervention. The Messianic age was political nature within the nation of Israel. Now for today, we can see some parallels and some overlaps. Because for many of you, you've grown up in a context where Christianity means being Republican. Or it means embracing some sort of political strain. And it means embracing some sort of political cause. But the reality is that Christianity, whether you're Republican, Democrat, or other, it will come up at you and at some point challenge you where you're at. It will challenge your convictions. It does that. We have a God who can contradict us, and that is also unsettling to the powers that be. I was thinking about this when we sang our song of praise on page 2. 
I know, before I read the lyrics here, that among us, there are many heavy hearts right now. There are struggles that you're facing. There's hardship that you're feeling. There are things that are weighing you down. And yet, look, here's a hymn that we sing in worship. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Some of you don't feel like lifting up your heart. That's why it's a command here. That's why it's imperative. It's a discipline. When we have a God who can contradict us, it's a discipline to be able to listen to His Word, listen to the power of His Word, and lift up our hearts. Do the work of it. Why are you disquieted, O my heart, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, the psalmist says. So, the religious leaders arrested Peter and John. And what's interesting is that they used measures that were allowable by Jesus. And they tried to stop the disciples' teaching and their activities. And the way that it would work in that time period for Jewish law is that a person must be aware of consequences of his crime before being punished for it. So he had to be given legal admonition before witnesses. And could only be punished for an offense when they relapsed into a crime after due warning. This is what studies of that ancient Near Eastern culture tell us. Now what's interesting in contrast is if you go back, not now, but some other time, you go back and look when you get the chance at why all of this law that Sanhedrin is using now went out the window with the trial for Jesus. Study sometime on your own what a mockery of justice it was. How there were no rules that were adhered to. There was no law that was appealed to. There was a fervor that was disturbed greatly against what was going on. Now, verses 15 through 17 show us that the religious leaders actually had no disposition, disposition to be convinced by what happened in the healing of the man or by what the apostles were teaching. They didn't even have the disposition. They were hardened to it. They would have denied the miracle if they could. Verse 14, but they had nothing to say in opposition. Why? Because the man was standing right there beside them. How did they get so hard? Hard in heart, in their belief. What's interesting here, and and some of you may have heard something about this, and, and some of you may have not heard this, but there's... The seat of who we are as spiritual beings, the Bible describes as our heart. That's where it all takes place. And it means more than just the physical heart beating and pumping and pumping blood, right? The seat, our spiritual seat is our heart. And when we believe that God is our advocate through the work of Jesus Christ, and that He lived life on our behalf, and he died death in our place, and he rose again to conquer the powers that would threaten us, and he did in the heaven so he could send his spirit that we might live by him. When you encounter that living Jesus, there are moments where you reject it, just like this group does. All of us, myself included. There are moments where we struggle with it. The Puritans were great 
Doctors of the Soul. Sometimes you should read some of them. If you want to talk to me about some of them to read, I can recommend a couple. But they were great doctors of the soul. And what's interesting about them is they existed and thought about matters of the religious heart, the spiritual seed of us, before modern psychology. They didn't have the categories that we have today. So it's very interesting to hear about how they talk about this. And they'll talk about spiritual degradation and, and our falling down in our belief of the gospel. False spirituality in stages, and it's subtle. One of the things they talk about is the idea that there's a difference between entering into temptation and not. When you don't enter into temptation, temptation comes, you say, no, this is who I am in Jesus. This is who I am. Don't trouble me. And you avoid entering in. Entering in is just slightly different. Temptation comes, you go, huh, nope. This is who I am in Jesus. It's a very slight difference, but you've already entered in if you're even cocking your head just a little bit internally and saying, hmm, there's something appealing about that. But beyond entering into temptation, there's accusation. You're entering into accusation. You're letting... You're inviting... Before accusation, there's a, a way that you invite conversation. You give dialogue. It's like there's a criminal at your door, and they want to hurt you, but you let them in, and you sit them down at your table, and you say, tell me about what you're going to do. Let me consider that with you. Right? And you discuss it with them. And you give their voice the same shaping authority that God's voice should have. And when you do that, you fall under accusation. The next stage down in the temptation and, and, and sin cycle for us individually is accusation. And that's where Satan comes along, whose name in part means the accuser, and he says, and you call yourself a Christian. You've entered in. You've argued with instead of against. Now you're under accusation. And beyond that is a level worse which is just spiraling down, and it's a hardness. Now, some of you have experienced what I'm talking about. Some of you aren't aware that that's a dynamic in spiritual life and spiritual growth. But what I mean to say to you here off these pages is that when those kinds of things, entering in, arguing with instead of against, accusation, being under accusation, and spiraling down, happen corporately, not just individually, it is powerful. There's not even a willingness to consider the truth before you. Where are you in the cycle? Where are we corporately in the cycle? Where are God's people corporately in the cycle here in Philadelphia? We need to know that. We need to be wrestling with that. We need to be concerned with that. So we move from false spirituality to truth spirituality. Verse 8 says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled. What does that mean? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter's a Christian. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Commentators note that the word filled here is in the aorist passive and it denotes a special moment, a special moment of inspiration that complements and brings to a functional focus the presence in every believer's life of the person in ministry of God's Spirit. 
So let's, let's turn that around and think about Peter for a second. What did the person and ministry of God's Spirit complement and bring into functional focus for Peter? When we look at true spirituality, we need to see that. The first thing we see just very basically is Peter's defense. What's Peter's defense about? Verse 9, the healing of the crippled man was an act of kindness. It's a good deed. Jesus wrestled with this when he was st- before he had ascended in his ministry. How can you heal this man on the Sabbath? You know, and Jesus says, well, if you have an animal that you work your farm with, falls into a pit on the Sabbath, don't you save it? Oh, yeah. Well, then why aren't we doing kindness? Isn't God about mercy and justice and walking humbly with him? So Peter's first defense is that healing the crippled man was a, an act of kindness. It was a good deed. Well, by what means did this good deed happen, they ask. And in Peter's defense, he says, verse 10, the name of Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one. Now you remember the political beliefs of the Sadducees. Messianic age is already here. There are already several names that are part of that movement that they themselves are guardians of. But verse 11, Peter quotes and says the cornerstone has become the capstone. Now, there are lots of things happening there. One of the things is that the temple was rebuilt after uh, exile and the, you know, the diaspora of, of uh, the Israel into many different nations, and, and the temple was torn down, and so it was rebuilt, and here it is in Jerusalem. And so the thinking of that, that capstone that is the finishing stone of the temple where we go to meet God. But they're also thinking of the messianic age that they're already stewards of politically they're, that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. And so Peter's answer is no. The cornerstone refers to a word picture for Jewish Messiah taken from the Psalms. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. It's by him that the crippled man was made well. The one who was the cornerstone became the capstone. He's the Messiah. You've got it wrong. It's not political. It's life-giving. It is age-changing. We're moving into a new era. Something different has happened here. So Peter's defense is there as he's filled with the Spirit. He could not be contained. Verse 19 says he had to listen to God. And verse 20 says, we cannot speak of what we've, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. So we see the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit come in Jesus, in Peter's defense. But we also see it in verses 24 through 30 in prayer in the midst of suffering. Now, this is interesting, and I want you to spend some time this week in this passage and consider it, because I think it's appropriate for where a lot of our lives are at as we face suffering, as we face hardship. We need to wrestle with this, because Luke, I think, has included this prayer to serve as a pattern for our own prayers. A pattern. You want to know part how to pray? Let's look at this prayer together. Here are some of the things that we see. First, verse 27 and 28. The sufferings of Christian believers are related directly to the sufferings of Jesus. This is an important part of the gospel. We have a God who is not removed, but enters in to the brokenness, to the filth, to the muck and the mire, to all of the 
relational and psychological and emotional and sociological degradation. He enters right into that, into the poorest part of it. Meek and mild, and he becomes one of us. He takes it on. He moves into the neighborhood. As Eugene Peterson put it in his message, paraphrase of the Bible, very helpful to read. Brings colors of things out that you haven't seen before. Sufferings of Christian believers are related directly to the sufferings of Jesus. And we're going to see more in verses 29 and 30. The main focus of the prayer, and this is instructive for us. Remember, Luke put this here to be instructive for us. The main focus of the prayer is not praying primarily for relief from oppression or for judgment upon their oppressors. You see that? It's not the main focus of the prayer. What is the main focus of the prayer? For enablement from God to speak your word with great boldness amid oppression. Amid the oppression, amid the persecution. Their concern, verse 30, was for God's word to go forth and for Jesus' name and power to be glorified in effect for the church's witness while leaving God, leaving to God their own circumstance. Now that's powerful because when we enter into temptation and we're somewhere in that cycle, either individually or as a group, one of the things it does is create a kind of lens that colors everything that we look through. It shapes the reality that we see. And it's not true. It bends it. It distorts it. So to, and so often when we pray and we're in pain and we're suffering, we're, we're distorted through the lens of that suffering. We're going to God through desires that are corrupt, Paul says in Ephesians. We've been corrupt by deceitful desires, that we're not approaching God with right hearts. And so their main focus in prayer is for enablement, to speak your word with great boldness and for the name of Jesus to be glorified. We leave to God our circumstances. God is good all the time, whether we can see it or not. He's good all the time. That does not change. And the one freedom you have in the midst of suffering is to go to him that can't be taken away from you. I just said a very simple thing, but it is miraculously freeing in the face of great pain and great suffering. Your ability to go to him and see how you need to grow closer to him, which your suffering will often show, is a fantastic privilege. And it cannot be taken from you. Even in the midst of the worst that you face. Now, I was thinking a little bit about the idea. Sometimes I struggle with a little bit of extra belly and therefore some pain in the lower back, right? And when I suffer with pain in the lower back, a little Advil, it's pretty good, right? So, and we have that access to us. Most of us sitting here have access to relief from most kinds of pain and suffering that we would feel. But let's consider our aversion, our lack of having to deal with pain and suffering, and this passage and what it means. One thing interesting to note that I found 
the commentator said, is that after chapter 3, there are only three chapters in Acts, only three chapters in Acts, that do not mention persecution. This suggests that persecution may be a necessary part of the Christian life. You remember John, Jesus in John, the Gospel of John, he said this, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Remember Paul as he's writing to leaders that he's raising up in the church. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In the Bible, contrary to our aversion to suffering... Suffering is seen as integral to salvation, something that Jesus willingly took on, so that we don't have to do it in an ultimate way, but it's also seen as a blessing in this life. Listen to some of the teachings from Scripture. Romans 5, 3-5. Not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or again in Philippians 1, 29 and 30, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Or James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, And sisters, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, we must seek to be faithful and to guard against temptation in entering in particularly the temptation of toning down our gospel. Our gospel is that Jesus came in from the outside, God incarnate, that he lived the life that we should have lived, that he died the death that we should have died, that he rose again from the dead, conquering the power of sin and death, that he ascended into heaven so that he would be free to send his spirit so that he could dwell with each one of us personally, relationally, in reality, making us different kinds of people, People who are like salt that can be poured out of the shaker, making things taste wonderful in the world. We've got to be careful about avoiding suffering and persecution for the sake of being comfortable. As a sign of God's approval, verse 31, the place where they were meeting was shaken. That's significant because Luke is drawing upon the fabric, the very fabric of the presence of God in the redemptive history as it unfolds in the people of God. In Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai, it says this, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Or in Isaiah 6, 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The presence of the Lord 
filled with the Holy Spirit, life-changing, makes us different kinds of people in relationship with the living Lord. What are the implications for us? We've looked at false spirituality. We've looked at true spirituality. What are the implications for us? The first thing, verse 8, is the anointing, filling with God's Spirit. What does the person and ministry of God's Spirit complement and bring into functional focus for you? How does God's Spirit work in your heart, day to day, moment to moment, in the trials you face, in the things you suffer through, in the joy you have, in the fun you have, in the laughter that you share among one another? How does God's Spirit and ministry anoint you? How does it complement and bring into functional focus His presence in your life? What does His presence in your life look like? Do you have His presence in your life? If not, ask Him for it. He gives freely and without cost. And it changes you from the inside out. You can be a different kind of person than you ever dreamed or imagined. It doesn't mean that we become perfect. It doesn't mean that we're without sin. It doesn't mean that we uh, have it all together. But it means that we will see progress in one another's lives. We'll see the progress of the gospel as we develop. Verse 13, courage. Where do you need courage when preaching the gospel to those whose power is threatened by it? Where do we need that corporately? I can't help but to think of our current context in Philly. Serving food to the homeless in Philadelphia. We're going to talk about today after the service how we're going to address that. But did you know that feeding the hungry is so deeply wound up with the outflow of our salvation and a demonstration of it that if it's not there, there's a passage where Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. Do you realize how much showing that kind of mercy is wrapped up in our worship, in our belief, in what we do together as a community and as individuals? We need courage when preaching the gospel to those whose power is threatened by it. Also, it's interesting that Peter here shows the desire to use every opportunity to share the message of the gospel. Every opportunity. He's a trial. He knows what can come of this. Have you been to trial? Have you at least seen one? It's pretty powerful. And they roll to a pretty powerful conclusion. And there are consequences. What's interesting here is that in a trial, Peter's not just aiming to get off the hook. He's using this circumstance to get the message of the good news of Jesus across. Verse 13, nearness and similarity to Jesus. It's something that we see also as an implication for us. Nearness and similarity to Jesus. The Sanhedrin, it says, took note that Peter and John had been with Jesus. And now they're doing things similar to Jesus. They took note of that. They saw it. They didn't want to have to acknowledge it. They couldn't find a way to not acknowledge it because the guy was standing right there with him. But they, they took note. 
Are you spending time with the Lord? We do here in worship, but is that the only time you spend with the Lord during the week? Do you seek him in his word? Do you seek him in prayer? Do you let his word shape your prayer and contradict you? Do you allow him to shape who you are and make progress in your life and have courage and have strength and hope? Spend time with him. We need to be the people of the word if we're going to live in this way, in a way that proclaims Jesus and his gospel, the good news. It means, verses 19 and 20, loyalty to God, even if it means threats or persecution. This is where they say, you're going to have to judge for yourselves whether it's right to obey you or obey God. We've got to obey God. And verse 20, confidence in the gospel. We cannot help but to speak. We cannot help. These are the things we saw. We know this to be true. This will change you. Please. It's also fascinating that they're not angry with the religious leaders for they're not getting it. They're pleading with them. They're saying, please, look at Jesus. Look at the evidence. Verse 12, there's one name for salvation. It's the cornerstone. The one who's going to hold it all together and who holds it all together, Jesus. Now, again, as the last time I was with you, I just gave you lots of things to do. Lots of things to do. How are we going to do it? We're going to fail. You're going to go out here and you're going to try. And you might last till this afternoon. And you're going to realize, okay, I dropped the ball. And then you're going to forget about it. And then you're going to come back next Sunday and say, oh, yeah, I I forgot. We're supposed to do this. How are we going to do this? As you pray, as you draw near to Jesus, as you look at his word, you need to remember that Jesus was emptied on the cross. He rose again and ascended so that you could be filled with his spirit. You have his presence. No one can take that from you. Jesus says nothing on heaven and earth. No powers. No angels, no demons, no authorities. Nothing in all creation can separate you from his love once you experience it. Once he sets it on you. Jesus was empty on the cross and he rose again and ascended so you could be filled with his spirit. But also Jesus let himself be overcome by the power of persecution and judgment. He was overcome. He was undone by it so that we would never have to face the ultimate persecution and judgment. When we approach God, we are not approaching the judge's bench if we're in Jesus and what he's done. When we approach God, we approach him as Father, and we run into his arms, and we have that boldness and that freedom, because in Jesus, God says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Where have you served? Where have you failed to serve, more importantly? Do you realize that God the Father, if you're in Jesus, says to you right now, well done, good and faithful service, servant? It is not your effort that brings you into right relationship with God. It is Jesus' effort. And that's exactly who they were proclaiming here. And that's exactly what we need to proclaim to our own hearts. And that's exactly what we need as a body to proclaim to our city. Jesus was left alone in his judgment so that we can draw near to him and always have his presence. Jesus is our loyalty to God. Jesus is our confidence in the gospel. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you contradict us, that you shake us out of our slumber, that you meet us in our suffering, that you show yourself to be powerful and true and steadfast and graceful, that it's not what our hands have done, but it's you and your effort on our behalf that makes us right with the living God. You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, now and forever, you have made the way, and there's nothing that can separate us from you now because of your love to us. We're grateful for your good news. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.